Welcome to Doctors at Work. My name is Matt. I'm an ENT consultant, a medical educator and a coach. This podcast is about doctors' careers. I'm interviewing a range of doctors and I'm trying to find out what it takes to succeed and what it takes to have a meaningful career. Today, we focus on career decision making. I'll have a conversation with Stephen Aldridge, who's just completed his foundation training, and we will discuss how he went about career decision making, some of the challenges that he's had in trying to make career decisions, and also he's going to share his tips about how to make your career decision. Enjoy. Welcome, Stephen. So today we're talking about career decision making. So tell me a little bit about your career decision making. I think that is probably the thing I think most about at the minute. I'd say for the last for the last year, that's probably been the topic that's been most on my mind is what career do I need to decide to go down? How do I make that decision? I think it's a it's an absolutely gigantic topic. Um, I am a graduate entry. Well, I was a graduate entry medical student. I'd done a degree, two degrees before doing medicine. And so in that sense, my career decision has always been a little bit uh, lengthened, I suppose. And then having completed foundation, I found myself at a loss for any particular speciality. I remember sitting down with my educational supervisor at the end of F2. And he said, are you any closer to narrowing it down? And I said, well, I've narrowed it down between medicine, surgery, psychiatry, and GP. And uh, he said, so you've ruled out pathology and radiology. And I was like, yeah, I've ruled out those two. That Those ones are done. So I was very much um, left with a lot of options. And I think that is a, is a very overwhelming feeling when you work in a system which very much tries to encourage you down a, a particular path fairly early on. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I'm hoping that by the end of this conversation, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll have a bit more of an idea of what I want to do. <laughs> okay. Maybe if I, if I take you back to your decision to study medicine, I mean, how, how did you make that decision? I think it was quite a long decision. So I think a lot of graduate entry medical students are similar to myself. And then a lot of them on the other side where they knew they wanted to do medicine when they were younger. They either didn't get in when they were 18 or they didn't apply when they were 18 for their own reasons. I was very much someone who, when I was at school, I was not very academic at all. Uh, I got a C at GCC chemistry and was very glad to never have done it again. Uh, and I went to go and do a psychology degree and I, I was told myself I was going to be a psychologist. That was going to be my thing. And I got there and I learned about neuroscience and I absolutely adored it. I thought it was the most interesting thing in the entire world. And I actually learned to love the science behind it as well. All the biological and chemical concepts that I feared so much when I was at school, when I was in the university environment and I was a bit older, I really, really enjoyed it. And I went to go do my master's and I thought to myself, you know, if I'm enjoying all this neuroscience stuff so much, there's a whole other body connected to this brain thing. And I wonder if that's just as interesting. And I think also, if I'm being honest with myself, there was a bit of a potentially an ego thing as well. It's, you know, doing medicine and becoming a medical student, going to medical school, it does have this very strong kind of social standing, this social prowess. That's a very amazing achievement to have gone and done that and i think having not had a lot of academic achievements and then having academic achievements at university i wanted to see if i was capable of that academic achievement and um lo and behold i i managed to do it um but yeah it was it was those two things really it was it was an academic interest and it was a, a personal interest of i wonder if i can if i can do this challenge and i always knew that 
I want to do something to you know work in healthcare because I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, and I think it was it was always a given that I wanted to do something with people, helping people. So it wasn't so much I decided to become a doctor because I wanted to help people. It was whatever I was going to do that was going to be my my focus because I feel like that's that's just what I wanted to do. I feel like I, I wanted to be useful to someone, and in healthcare just seemed to to match up with that. So all of that together, I think, is is, is why I took that path. So if I go even a step further back then, so you said there's always something about you where, where you want to be useful. Um, what, where does that come from or what's behind that wanting to be useful? Well, I think my girlfriend will say it's because I'm a massive people pleaser and uh, I'm just always trying to make sure everyone's happy and sorted. And that's very much true. And I, I think that's that's not a bad thing. I don't think many people would say that's a bad thing, but you've got to obviously be wary of how it affects you sometimes. Um, I just think that there are certain people, there are certain personality types that feel most comfortable when they are in a caring role, when they are looking after someone. And again, similar to previous, you have to be honest about that. There is a certain sense of personal satisfaction that comes from that, of being useful and being look, someone who looks after people. That is something that feels nice. And we get something from that as well. But also, you know, there is a social good and, you know, recognizing that you're trying to do something for the greater good to help other people. Um, I think that's just a necessary social thing. You know, there will always be a requirement for those kinds of people. And I think some people, their personalities, um, they lean more towards that than others. And that's absolutely fine. So this for me is about values. Yeah. So, you know, what, what, what I heard you articulate, what was a value that you want to be useful um, and that and that's not something that's prescribed. Who knows where it comes from? But it's something that is deeply ingrained within you as an individual. And, you know, you want to be useful for people. And that that's a value. And a value a value is a guide to how you want to be, how you want to behave, what kind of a person you want to be. And it's something that 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 guides the rest of the career and the rest of your life. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 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 you, you you've outlined a value that's guided um, what um, you um, are going to do. Um, then you said you you went to university and and um, you found that you really enjoyed things. So again, if you think of career decision making, then what we've got there is that that you you just completely by coincidence you find something that is fascinating and that, and that you love. Yeah, and it, it very much was a coincidence it was um it wasn't something that i'd i'd previously had any interest in at all it was uh you know something that i actually felt was quite hidden from me because of maybe a lack of academic aptitude when i was younger and it was actually the change of environment it was going from a school-based environment to a university environment that i think allowed me to access that interest and i've always thought that's quite interesting where you can be confronted with the same topic in two completely different environments and the topic will look completely different to you depending on the space you're in rather than the topic itself. And maybe that's the way we present things to other people has the same kind of concept. So if you're thinking to how doctors make career decisions, so th there might be a theory that you're going to rotate through things and you're going to just find something that's going to stand out and you're going to think, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. And, you know, that does happen to some people, doesn't it? Yeah. They, they rotate through a specialty and they think this is amazing. Um, but for an awful lot of other doctors, they rotate through and, and they don't find something that really stands out as the one most amazing thing. 
in the world. So, I mean, what do you do then? I think it's it's well, it's very much based on the experiences you have. That's what I'm I'm convinced of now. Looking back on foundation, I think the things I'm feeling very strongly about in terms of a career decision are either things I already had an interest in, like psychiatry and neuroscience, and then there are things that I just coincidentally found to be really interesting when I um, was in foundation, like ENT, for example. But then when I think why I found ENT, as an example, interesting, yes, it was because I liked the anatomy and I liked the science and I liked the pathophysiology of the diseases that you treat, but it was also because the rotation itself was very well supported. The registrars were very keen to train me, even though I was, you know, quote unquote, just an F1. I wasn't doing a lot of on-calls or anything like that. They were very keen to get me involved as if I was an SHO, as if I wanted to do ENT. And also the SHOs on that team were very supportive. And I just had a generally nice time on that rotation. It, it was a lot of fun. And I, I look back on that very fondly. And so I think it's inevitable that if you have that kind of experience while you're a foundation doctor, you will have a positive view of that speciality and it will make you more likely to pursue it. Then on the other side, if you go through foundation and you maybe don't have a particular fondness for one job over another, maybe because they all were fairly similar in the way you felt about them, maybe they weren't the best supported, maybe you were interested in, in an academic way, but the timetable, the, the rotor was too busy for, to allow you to get into theatre or to go to clinic, maybe then you lose the opportunity to to bond and connect with that speciality and decide that you know that's the thing you want to do for the rest of your life. And I think for me, that that was certainly an issue where I didn't feel that there was, although I did have certain interests there, it, it then became a choice of, of choosing between them. And there, there wasn't one that was clearly winning out over the other. And uh, I think it's important not to underestimate the weight of that decision of, of what do I want to do forever? You know, I, do I want to start down this training pathway and then be locked into that or be one of those stories where you hear someone gets to ST7 trauma and orthopedics and then decides they want to be a psychiatrist and goes all the way back to a CT1. You know, I think that's uh, that's the decisions I, I definitely struggle with. And I imagine um, a lot of my colleagues do as well. Okay. So, so you, you've introduced lots and lots of really interesting questions and concepts for me. So we've got this idea that, that you happen to rotate and you find something that you just love. And it's complete a fluke and a complete coincidence, isn't it? You come into something and you love. Then you've, you've introduced another concept, which is you've already got a bit of an interest and then you do a bit more and you do a bit more and you do a bit more. So that for me would be that for me would be developing an interest rather than a finding an interest. Yeah, you don't walk into a specialty and you think, I love this. You walk into a specialty and you say, Oh, I already know about this. That was interesting. And then you do a bit more, 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 and then that interest grows and develops. Yeah. So you don't find um, your interest, you develop and grow an interest. Yeah, of course, it has to start somewhere. Yeah, but you don't walk thinking this is amazing. You walk in thinking, oh, this is good. Maybe a bit of this, maybe a bit of this, maybe a bit of that. And then before you know it, you know, all of that grows and you grow your interest in a specialty or a topic or whatever it might be. Um, and then the other thing that you also mentioned in relation to ENT was the culture. Yeah, so because you, you mentioned it's perhaps it's not about what the specialty does. It's not about the, the, the medicine or the, or the technology or the drugs or the surgery or whatever. It's about the culture of a specialty. Yeah? And that also then becomes a really important um, career determinant. Uh, so, you know, less less about, you know, the specialty is interesting, but actually these are nice people. This is a nice culture. I, I, I like how they work. Yeah. 
Um, and relevant to that also, as you mentioned earlier, the context, yeah, doing neuroscience at school versus doing neuroscience at university and the context of being in a well-supported specialty versus in a specialty that was just overwhelmed where you never got a chance to learn anything. And maybe if those two things were switched around, you know, if, if ENT was really busy and not very well supported, you wouldn't have liked it. But the other specialty where you never got a chance to do anything other than ward work, if that specialty had been better supported and better resourced, then maybe you would have liked that. So context matters also. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's that's pretty much the nail on the head. Uh, and I think that that feeling of the context is so important. And a lot of the time, the context is out of your control can be quite a defeating thing. It almost it's it's this constant wondering of what if it's, uh, you know, it's almost like dating. OK, I'm interested in this idea of of, of what if, because earlier I heard you talk about, you know, the, the orthopedic person and then goes down to um, being um, a, um, a beginning of their psychiatry career. Or you said you worried about making mistakes. So I'm hearing I'm hearing in what you said, but also in some of the other discussions that I have is people are afraid of making in inverted commas the wrong career decision. So tell me a bit about that. I think that's one of the things that holds me back the most is this feeling that there is a right answer and there's a wrong answer. And I think the the logical side of me, and I'm sure my colleagues feel very similarly, know deep down that there is no wrong or right answer and your future is what you make of it. And even if you were forced by a, run, a random number generator to, to do, for example, trauma orthopedics, when really you wanted to do radiology, if you had the right mindset, potentially you could turn that into a success and you have a really nice career. But although you have that logical side of you that is aware of that, there's this kind of feeling of, oh, but then there must be this, this one thing that I'm kind of like destined to do or that would really suit my personality or suit my interests or my skills. And I think maybe it's just potentially the culture of, of medicine in general is this, this idea that there are specialists who fit into specialities rather than there are people who can just decide what they want from a speciality because obviously every speciality is extremely broad and you can you know make of it as much of as much as possible what you want from it really so you, you you've got this idea of 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 one's career being a destiny there's a preordained destiny and and you know and you will fit into that ideal career path and and it's there waiting for you to be discovered and and there's only one and it, and it's perfect and if only you could find it then all your worldly worries would be over yeah exactly and i i think it's sometimes we do ourselves a disservice because of the way that we as doctors talk about one another and to our colleagues you know in medical school you might hear uh your colleague they're on a ward round with a consultant or a registrar and they go, oh yeah, you're a, you're a real surgeon or, oh no, not for you. You're, you're a medic. Um, I had a few consultants who who'd pride themselves on um, predicting what people would go into. And I found it interesting that each time I was in that situation, they all predicted I would do something different. So I don't know which one of them will be correct, but um, we'll, we'll have to see. But I think there is this, um, there is this idea and I think a lot of it does have a weight to it. And I think sometimes we, like I said, we kind of misuse it. I remember I was in a, uh, I was a medical student at Royal Derby hospital and I was in clinic with a rheumatologist and we were talking about careers because a lot of his patients had unfortunately DNA'd and he had a lot of free time. So he was talking to me about careers 
And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I, I said, more or less the same thing I'm saying to you right now. And I always remember the piece of advice he gave me is he said that as much as we don't want to admit it, specialities have a culture and there are personalities that fit within that culture and there are personalities that don't fit within that culture. And it's important to recognize not just from an academic sense of what you would like to do. Would you like to do these procedures or learn about this anatomy or do this research? That's all very important, but you also have to recognize what suits you as a, as a personality and also what kind of people do you want to work with? And I thought that was a very interesting piece of advice. And I thought it was, you know, you very rarely hear someone admit or say that, you know, we actually do recognize that there are cultures within specialities and that does affect people's decision as to whether or not they want to go into that speciality. Um, but then at the same time, you're then left with a, a very broad, very broad question of, you know, where do I fit? Um, I have to say, I would actually agree with that with culture. Um, and it's how I ended up in ENT because I, in medical school and early on, I always knew that I probably wanted to do surgery um, and I probably wanted to do surgery. Um, not, not, I don't think for the, for the technical aspects particularly, but I, I like the idea that, that you could fix people. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I like the transactional element. People come, you fix them and then they go. And, you know, that, that, that's the way of practicing medicine that always appealed to me. Um, probably much, much more than necessarily chronic disease management. Yeah. Um, so I always had an inkling that surgery probably was going to be, um, where I was going to go. Um, and I, I signed up for my house officer jobs, which is sort of F1 equivalent, was house officer in those days. And I chose a job on the professorial surgery unit because I was quite interested in academic stuff. And I thought this was going to be amazing. You know, I was going to work for the professor of surgery. And the job was shocking, absolutely shocking. Um, but it came with, the, with ENT. So it was paired with ENT. So it was three months on the professorial surgery unit and three months ENT. And I don't remember any of my undergraduate ENT attachment. I must have done some, but to this day, I can't remember any of it or indeed where I did it. And then I ended up in ENT and, and, I, and I absolutely loved it. Um, so, and then I stayed there um, and, and it was the culture. Yeah, so the more, much yeah. more than anything else, yeah. But again, you know, sort of to go back to this idea of finding it versus growing it, I thought, well, this is interesting. But, you know, I wasn't sure I wasn't ready to commit. Um, and in the in the old days, when I was sort of at your stage, it was perfectly normal for people to meander and to try different things. In fact, it was encouraged. Yeah. I mean, the culture now has completely changed. And, and, and there's, this, there's this rush to make a decision and to progress your career, which in my time, that just didn't exist. Yeah. You know, no, nobody knew what they wanted to do. Everybody did A&E for a bit. And then people did sort of very broad based, you know, three year SHO rotations. Um, and I made sure that I picked one with ENT because I thought I'd like to do ENT again to see what it really is for me. And, and then I came back and then it grew on me. And then I did a senior SHO job in ENT, which grew on me even more. And then, then I decided to stay. But very much for me, it was about the people and the culture. And I thought, these are people like me. I can work with these kind of people. I like these kind of people. Um, and that's why I stayed. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing. I think it's it's interesting you say that back in your time when you were you know a house officer a senior house officer there was this encouragement to meander your career and to get a broad range of experience and i 
I always feel that's kind of maybe what's what's lacking at the moment is as much as people say when you're in medical school, oh, don't worry, you don't have to worry about what you want to do. You you kind of do. If if you want to be a surgeon or if you want to be a dermatologist or a neurosurgeon or or something, a very highly competitive speciality, you unfortunately, I feel these days, you do have to have an awareness that you want to do it from fairly early on. You have to show that commitment to the specialty. You have to show that you're interested in research. And, you know, in one way, that's good because it means that people who go into that speciality certainly care about it. But I think almost similar to the gem versus undergraduate, it would be a shame if we only had undergraduate doctors and it would be a shame if we only had gem doctors. I think the diversity is is a good thing. And I think there are certain specialities that would benefit from people finding them a little bit later in life after they've had a, a varied career. And I, I, I do kind of, I wish things were a little bit more uh, free and you could meander a little bit more, but I do feel that there is a very much a focus on, you know, you're completing your core training and you're doing this and then you're becoming a, an ST4 and then you're doing this and you do this exam and then you CCT and then you, you go for this. And it, it feels like someone who you don't really have contact with and has no real idea of you is, is planning your training for you. And in one sense, you're aware that's to do with competencies and making a good doctor who will be a good consultant in that speciality. But at the same time, there, there does seem to lack a human element or even an appreciation that you do want doctors with vast experience. You know, you don't just want your ENT surgeon to only know about ENT, because if you get, you know, hyperkalemia on the ward, you want to be able to at least be reasonably managed and identified as a sick patient. Um, even if your airway is the, is the primary reason you've come into hospital. Um, so I, I do, I do kind of lament that, that change a little bit. Potentially it's a, it's a little bit grass is greener on the other side. I'm sure there's lots of benefits that come with having that structured training approach. But uh, from my perspective, it certainly would be nice to feel that there was a little bit more scope for meandering. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about the, the, the push to get people through quickly because the cynical part of me would say that that the government wants as many consultants and qualified GPs as quickly as possible. Um, and that means that it's the government's agenda to try and push people through training as quickly as possible. Um, and is that the right thing for the, for the patients? I'm not convinced that it is because, you know, you get people that have a label of GP or consultant, but they perhaps haven't had all the relevant experience, you know. So, so, so is a is a GP who's who's had um, you know five years of training? Are, are they a better GP than somebody who's had ten years of training before they get the GP label? You know, we could debate that, couldn't we? Yeah, somebody who's very quickly gone into that pathway. Um, are they are they better, or worse, as good as somebody who has perhaps done a range of different things before they end up in general practice? Yeah, and like you say, you know, for for me in ENT, I did a lot of general surgery, vascular surgery. Um, I I ran the surgical HDU for six months. You know, when I came to ENT, I knew critically ill patients inside and out, and I was a better ENT registrar for it. Yeah, um, it took longer for me to become a consultant than it might be now, but when I did become a consultant. I had a much greater range of experiences. And I would argue that even though I became a consultant later, I was a better consultant than I would have been had I gone through um, very quickly. Um, and pushing people through very quickly, I, I, I don't think that that's in doctor's interest. Because yes, there are some people that want to, um, that know exactly what they want to do. 
Um, and that's not always good, by the way. Yeah. So there are some people who know exactly what they want to do, but there's an awful lot of people that actually they, they just want to experience a range of different things before they make a decision. Yeah, I think it's definitely a double-edged sword knowing what you want to do because you're it's great that you can make that decision, but then you are denying yourself of a lot of experience that would ultimately make you a better clinician. You know, I, I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's such a thing as too much knowledge or, or too much experience. I think it all fits somewhere and it all makes you better at your job. And I think that that's true of, I think any, any role, regardless of whether you're in healthcare or not, it's, it's always good to have more experience and a, a greater understanding of, of the, the wider world as it were. Um, the other issue also for me is that, you know, if you if you know very early what you want to do, what happens if you can't do it? Maybe you've got a health problem or a family reason why you can't do a particular specialty you know, or maybe you just don't get in. Yeah, you know, if your eyes are totally set on one thing and then if you can't do it or you don't get in, then your entire world falls apart. And that that then is is devastating because you've not been able to do the one thing that you always wanted to do. Um, so, you know, just wanting to do the one thing, that's fine if you can get in and if you can do it. But, you know, if you can't, that, then it's actually a, a real devastating blow. Yeah, absolutely. It's always going to be tricky if you attach your identity to something. The other thing I'd pick up, you, you said about lining up your CV and your experiences. Um, and, and I'm not, not sure that I'd entirely agree with you with the idea that you have to show commitment to that specialty and line everything up. Because I think that there's lots of generic um, skills, generic output that people can demonstrate. You know, you, you, you can do audits in different specialties that demonstrate that you're capable of that. Or you can do research projects, you can have leadership roles. And, and I don't think that all of that has to be in the particular specialty, particularly earlier on in your career. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, th th yes, you do have to somehow demonstrate that you're actually interested in the specialty that you apply for. But I don't think that every single project or experience or leadership role or research or audit or whatever you do, I don't think that every single thing has to be in that one specialty because yeah? they're, they're generic professional skills that you're developing. Yeah, no, I, I do appreciate that. I think sometimes more of it's a feeling that that's what is expected of you. And I've, I've certainly had a lot of um, colleagues of mine who have been put off, for example, even bothering to apply for surgery because they just immediately say, oh, well, I, I've not done enough audits. I've not done enough time in theory. So I've not done this. I've not done that. And, you know, they, they could make really great surgeons, but they just immediately discount themselves because there's this perception that if they hadn't decided they want to be a surgeon at the age of seven, they probably won't get in. And, you know, that's more true for people who want to do things like, for example, neurosurgery, which is obviously very competitive. But um, I think it's a shame that some specialities have kind of uh, adopted that perception, uh, or at least the, the people looking at them have adopted that perception. Um, and it, it does kind of uh, go against the what we're told in medical school, which is, you know, to you don't have to decide early on or that you shouldn't decide early on. There's sometimes mixed messages where you're told you should decide early on so that you can prepare your portfolio and then, oh, no, you shouldn't. You should get experience. And potentially it's because there's that shift between cultures where you have people from one part of life where they had a very meandered experience and were better for it. And then you've got people who recognize that times are changing. As you say, there is a push to create more and younger consultants. And they're then feeding back to the medical students and the foundation doctors that, you know, you should have your ducks all in a row and you should know what you want to do and you should prepare your CV 
thusly. And so even if the reality is that you don't need to have everything lined up, that feeling, I think, can create a sense of unease and actually clouds the waters when it comes to making a career decision. It's it's almost like a decision has been taken away from you before you could even make it because you didn't decide to do this one audit when you were a, a clinical phase one student. So th- there's two things there for me. So the first one is, can people change? Yeah, because you said, you know, I haven't done these things and therefore I can't get in. You know, that's nonsense, isn't it? Yeah. You know, maybe you haven't done an audit yet. You haven't done a research paper yet. You know, you haven't done a presentation yet. You haven't had a leadership role yet. There are all things that can be changed and fixed. Yeah. So, so you know, the people that say, oh, you know, I haven't done it and therefore this door is closed. You know, that that's nonsense because, you know, if you want that door to open, then go out there and do whatever you need to do in order to make that door open. So, so it's very much stuff that is achievable you know if people want to yeah but the, but but the mindset that goes well you know this is how i am um you know that kind of fixed mindset this is this is me i'm a fixed person i am undevelopable undevelopable i am ungrowable you know that's problematic isn't it the mindset that says no i'm not a fixed person i can develop i can grow i can do all of these things you know that's a much better mindset to have yeah and the other thing that i would say also is that that you can you can have a high performing cv that will open doors in multiple different specialties yeah so and again you know if 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 i think for me so so i did a, an intercalated degree in neuroscience yeah and you know and i've ended up in pediatric airway and i did a phd in glue ear and i now don't see children with ear problems at all because i just do airway so you know neither my intercalated degree nor my phd were anything to do with what i'm actually doing at the moment and you know one of my colleagues is a rhinologist and he did a phd in autotoxicity yeah so so again you know you know people do stuff that that demonstrates that you're a high performing individual that you're capable and you're achieving all of these things but but that doesn't mean that you specifically end up doing that, yeah. You know, sometimes things do line up and, you know, sometimes they don't, yeah. And, you know, if you've done really good audits or projects or leadership roles, it doesn't have to be in the specialty that you're applying for, yeah, because you've demonstrated that you're an individual that's that's working at a high level, um, but it doesn't have to be in that exactly the same specialty, yeah. So I would encourage people to worry don't worry about which specialty you're doing your projects in because I don't think it particularly matters yeah it's much more important that what you do is you do high quality work and the high quality work will speak for itself whichever specialty you go into yeah absolutely it reminds me a lot of a conversation I had with my colleague and friend the other day he he's another just finished f2 he's locuming at the moment as an f3 Um, But we're having a conversation. He was feeling quite defeated about the fact that he wanted to apply for IMT and he was looking through the um, requirements of the the portfolio and what you get points for and what you don't get points for and and all that kind of thing. And he was saying he felt a bit despondent because he's not really done any audits or he's not really done any teaching. And I had a conversation with him. And by the end of that conversation, we realized he had done four audits and he'd done an entire six months of teaching. But when he thought of that, he thought of what they wanted what their version of teaching, what their version of what it would be, would clearly have to be something very medical, very focused on medicine, internal medicine and cardiology, respiratory. And actually, when you when you broke it down, he fit the box in many, many ways. You just have to kind of expand your definition a little bit and realize that what they're probably asking for is a lot less specific than what you think. But I think his mindset came from a culture that was maybe 
passed down onto us of this feeling that very specific things are required to get into specialities and obviously the reality of that is is debatable but there seems to be at least from from my cohort there seems to be this perception that you have to be a very specific person to do this specific job and whilst they may accept that they are developable and they they can change their goals and things like that there does seem to be this preconceived notion that um specialists are born rather than made and i do think that's problematic because that does kind of um disempower you when it comes to you making a career decision you kind of feel that someone's got to make the choice for you or or you're going to take a test one day and it's going to come out with the uh with the result and say you're going to be a a medical psychotherapist and there's there's no choice you have in it that's what our algorithm has said you're going to do and uh maybe one day that will be what the future is like but i think for now that there is almost perception that that's the case i hope not <laughs> yeah me too okay so we we we've kind of we we're contradicting two very different views of the world yeah so we've got a view of the world that says that says you know i have one career in me it's just a matter of time until i find it i'm suited for one particular thing um and and i need to go out there searching for it and then mysteriously i'm going to find it and i'm going to say yes this is the one and then my life will be perfect um and we're contradicting that with another view of the world um which is that that there might be an inkling of interest of some things but the interest is something that develops over time i develop and grow and my interest develops and grows in that specialty the culture of the specialty and the environment is important um and each one of us has multiple careers um within us rather than just one and and you know and in your case any one of those multiple careers is guided by your wish to be useful to other people yeah i think they they are they're the opposite ends of the spectrum aren't they uh those those two worldviews and i think it they're harbored by by different types of people i think there are there are obviously those people who knew they wanted to be trauma and orthopedic surgeons before they even went to medical school and then there are people who you know in my position where they've uh, narrowed down almost uh, no options but uh i think it's um you know i think that that just shows that people have different personalities and then that leads us back into the whole question of our personality suited to certain specialities i do wonder if maybe people who say for example i only use trauma and orthopedics as an example because i i happen to know a lot of people who knew they wanted to do trauma and orthopedics for a very long time maybe certain specialities are composed of people who knew they wanted to do that speciality and then there are specialities that are more comprised of people who maybe meandered for a little bit and found their way to it maybe it wasn't so obvious for them and um I think that probably would have a lot to do with how the uh, specialty markets itself and and also people's exposure yeah yeah of course you, lo- lots of people will be exposed to A&E for example you know or, or ITU or trauma and orthopedics or general practice yeah ev- everybody knows about those areas so you know people people understand them and they're relatable and you know people might say you know this is what I want to do um and that the, there's a mass of other specialties that people have never heard of um that that don't have that those kind of high profiles um and that means that that because you don't they don't have that high profile then people don't necessarily find them or they don't look for them or they're not interested in them and and i think we know from research that what influences career decision making is what people have been exposed to yeah as, absolutely as, like i always wonder how people decide to be microbiologists not because i don't think microbiology is interesting it's just how did they decide how did they get that experience to make that decision 
And then I actually, coincidentally, um, since starting this job now at, at Queen's Medical Center, I've spoken to a few foundation doctors who actually did have a microbiology attachment or they did a microbiology SSM and every single one of them absolutely adored it. Whether or not they decide to go into microbiology or not, they absolutely loved it. And I thought that's really interesting because if you speak to the average foundation doctor and say, would you like to be a microbiologist? They'd probably say, absolutely not. But that's because they have no experience of it other than talking to a microbiologist on the phone. That's that's the the length of their microbiology experience as a career. And uh, I think it's a it's a shame that there's not a bit more diversity when it comes to the attachments people um, go through as foundation doctors. Because, I mean, certainly for me, the reason I'm in an ENT based job at the minute is because I had a really good time in my ENT placement. And, you know, it, potentially if, if we were in a, in a world where one day foundation doctors got more control over which attachments they had, that may very well produce consultants that are more i don't know uh i don't want to say happier with their speciality but they're, they're at least more confident in the decisions they made to get there mm-hmm. yeah so we, we're again we, we're with the microbiology and, and ent that you've outlined with that we're back to that idea that there might be an inkling that you might want to do something but you're not sure so you know it's not that you love it at the beginning you don't walk into it and you love it there's an inkling and then you do a bit more and you say this is interesting you do a bit more you do an ssm you know you do you do an f2 role in it and then over time an interest in something grows so you don't find the fully developed specialty and a fully developed interest it's something that grows on you over time through a series of placements a series of contacts and interactions and experiences yeah absolutely um okay so i think if we if we're um sort of kind of go back to where we started maybe this idea that 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 you know you said you want to be useful to people um and there's lots and lots of different ways that you can be useful to people um so you know that's a great position to be in because there's lots and lots of career opportunities out there for somebody who wants to be useful to others but also it's very difficult because you know what on earth you have to pick something um, but actually, you could be useful in any one of a number of different careers. Any of them would be fine. Yeah, and that is reassuring. If, if you make your goal achievable, if your goal is to be useful, if you are a competent doctor, then you've you've achieved your goal. Even if you never became a consultant and you stayed in F1 for the rest of your life, you would still be useful. And so in that way, I've, I've set a very achievable goal. But then it's it's about where would I be the most useful? Where would I feel the most personal satisfaction from the use I am providing? And I think that's a, obviously a much more profound question. And it's one that everyone has to ask themselves at one point. And I think there also has to be a acceptance that, you know, as much as we as doctors don't like that idea, there is no one single right answer. You know, there is a case to be had for, for both treatments, you know, and until you choose one, you don't really know you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I think for some people that's very daunting. They don't want to get back to the end of their career and regret not doing core psychiatry and they did surgery instead. And then you can also flip it on its head and say that's quite exciting to to have an experience that could be really varied and, you know, could offer you a lot of the same things that you would have got in another speciality, just in a in a slightly different um in a slightly different package. Okay, so when when you don't know what to do or when, when one doesn't know what to do and there's a range of options that all would be good, so there's something there about, you know, how it's packaged, yeah, sort of, you know, that might help one decide what you do. And then the other thing you said is when you would 
personally experience most satisfaction? Um, so that for me is another sort of question. So maybe if we start with the first one, how how would how 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 are different careers packaged? You know, what kind of things might you or somebody else take into account when they're looking at the whole package of a specialty? Well, when I think about how certain specialties market themselves, whether that be actively or kind of passively within the culture that we've already spoken about, um, if I were to compare, for example, general surgery and ENT, ENT may very well say that we have um, a lot of maybe personal satisfaction in the sense that the work-life balance is potentially better. Um, The nature of the work you're doing often allows for um, better hours, uh, whereas general surgery, maybe that's less the case. But then at the same time, general surgery, may they may argue whether or not that's true or not. I don't know whether they argue that they're, you know, because of those, those crazy hours, because you'd be doing surgery at three in the morning, fairly reliably, you know, that's very exciting. It's very high adrenaline, quickly paced. And, you know, then an, an ENT surgeon would say, well, if I'm doing an airway surgery, a head and neck, that I think that's very exciting. And then it comes down to personal preference. But there are certain labels attached to specialities like, you know, better work-life balance, better patient satisfaction. I was speaking to one of my colleagues in the um, at QMC who wants to be a neurosurgeon. And he said one thing that always was something that people put him off. Um, they would say, oh, well, you know, in neurosurgery, your patients may not have the best outcomes compared to, say, for example, general surgery, where they go home the next day or even the same day or, or trauma and orthopedics where they're walking again or ophthalmology where you're giving them their sight back neurosurgery you may have very conservative goals for the end of the surgery and you know when you have that kind of label attached to something i think that can be very powerful in either persuading or dissuading someone and i think it very much depends on what the individual finds important as to which labels attract or repel them um if there's someone who is you know absolutely loves an adrenaline filled environment and doesn't mind that they're on call at three in the morning, despite the fact that they're a 50 year old man or woman. Um, you know, if you tell them the work-life balance is good in this speciality, they, they may not care so much about it, but for someone who recognizes that actually they, they have a lot of other interests or their family is a big focus for them or their hobbies are a big focus for them, then obviously a work-life balance is a really important label and specialities that sell that to people as part of the pros of that speciality will obviously attract that that kind of person so i think that that depends it's 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 all about marketing really i suppose when when we say how things are packaged but that package will resonate with with different people okay so we've got something there about you know what 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 is the whole package there's the clinical role that's fine but then you've got the hours life balance adrenaline rush you know patient outcome cultures um, and there's probably other things, you know, if, if you if you take this to somebody else, they're going to have other stuff that they say, you know, what else do we need to put into the whole package um, of what a job is? And those different aspects, different individuals will put different priorities into those. Yeah. So so it's less about choosing one specialty over another, but it's about, you know, what's the full package? You know, how how much do I work? How much do I sleep? How much adrenaline rush do, do I have? What kind of hours I work? Yeah. So that that's all of that then influences when somebody doesn't know what they want to do as a career rather than thinking what's the job itself like what's the specialty like what's the science like you take a step back and say actually what's the whole package of this specialty like yeah it's what would my life look like if i did that speciality okay and how else can somebody who's not sure 
what they want to do so that they can look at the whole package. How else can somebody who's not sure what to do decide? This is something I've been considering, and that is just to, I think, obviously, people get blinded by choice. You go into the supermarket and you've got seven different brands in front of you and you think to yourself, well, how on earth am I going to be able to sift through these options and develop a pros and cons lift? And I think there is something to be said in just making a choice and going with your gut and leaving all the the rationale behind for a moment and just saying to yourself, I'll decide a career path and if I want to change, I'll change it. And there is maneuverability and there is the scope for meandering as much as I may feel that the culture at the minute isn't supporting that. At the end of the day, I am the the arbiter of my own destiny and I will decide what I want to do. And I think that's that's a fairly brave choice. I think people, particularly on on medical tracks as they were, tend to want the path to be clear and easy and open. But I think there is something to be said about just making a choice and accepting the fact that it may not be the quote unquote right or perfect choice, but that you're going to make it anyway and you'll experience it as you experience it and you'll change it as you need to change it. And, you know, also recognize that even if you go into a speciality, you're not doing the entire speciality, you will inevitably specialize within a speciality and that subspeciality may actually offer everything that you wanted and you can't see it at the minute because it seems like, you know, you missed the the, the forest for the trees or the or the trees for the forest. I can't remember which way that saying goes around. But, you know, there, there are things you can't see at the minute that actually if you enter most specialities, you probably will find that that thing that feels a little bit more perfect. But you just need to be in it first. And that requires you to just jump. So the, a number of different careers would all be good. Yeah, you know, sort of find something that vaguely seems interesting, go for it, and then you grow and you develop that interest. Um, and, and what's really important then also is, you know, what's the whole package um, of the career like? Yeah. yeah, I think you can certainly do your pros and cons list with your whole package and try and work out which one's going to be right for you. But you need to accept that if you do have lots of choices left at the end, there isn't going to be a formula to work out exactly what's right for you. And inevitably, you do just have to start the process of okay i'm going to go down this route and i'm going to see what happens and i think it's just that that's quite a scary um a scary idea um for for a lot of people obviously for some people they absolutely relish that and i think that's great and other people they want to be a bit more cautious and a little bit more methodical and uh you know i think i i do think it's very interesting how much personality does come into these kinds of decisions and you know shapes the inevitably the personalities of the people that go into certain specialities now will shape the culture of that speciality in 30 years. And that may very well have a feedback effect on, you know, people in my position in, in 30 years time. And that's, I think that's quite interesting. What, what makes it scary? I think the idea that you would regret it or that you would uh, miss out on other opportunities that would be better for you. It's, it's all this idea. And the thing is, it's all very theoretical. You're scared of something that hasn't happened yet, which is never the right thing to go down. Um, but it's that's still quite a powerful demotivating factor or motivating factor. Um, but I think for me, when I think about it, I obviously don't want to speak for anyone else, but I would imagine that most people feel similarly is the fear is that they would make the wrong decision, even though they don't even know what the right decision would look like. It's it's an incredibly illogical experience, but you know, I don't think humans are very they're not famous for their logic. 
I'm, I'm thinking of existentialism now and existentialist philosophy and, you know, th this idea that, that all of us are responsible for our own destiny, aren't we? And, you know, and that that's exciting because you're the only person that's responsible for your own destiny. But at the same time, it's also terrifying because you're responsible for your own destiny. Yeah, it's very much a, a double edged sword. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier um, that um, that you you enjoy being useful. You want to be useful, but I think I think you said that that trying to find out where you would feel most useful or where you would feel that you're most um, achieving um, and and doing your best work. And you know, one of the ways that that people can do that is people can look back at their careers um, and they, they can say, you know, okay, what have been the peak moments in my career? You know, what, what, when have been the times when I've been at my best, when I've been flying, when I've been thriving, when I've been doing my best work and sometimes going back and looking at analyzing and thinking about all of those things, that can be a really useful exercise because it, then you can, you can identify to say, actually, these are the circumstances. These are the conditions where I am at my best you know, where I am being the most useful. And that can sometimes also be an exercise that one can do to help you decide when am I most useful? When do I feel that I've achieved my best work? Yeah. So maybe as my final question um, for you is, when, what's been your peak achievement to date? I think when I look back on the story that I would tell people of when I was most proud of myself or I'd achieved the most, it's actually when when I objectively looked at the situation, I really don't feel like I did that much in terms of the scope of what a doctor does. You know, when we think of what a doctor does, it's, you know, running blood tests and giving treatments and coming up with complicated management plans and all that kind of stuff. And, and in this situation, I, I didn't actually do any of that. Um, it was my first job as a foundation doctor. I was on the liver ward at um, one of the Trent hospitals. And we had a patient who unfortunately had had a very bad detox and had suffered I'm going to forget the name of it now, but uh, osmotic pontine myelinosis, I believe it's called. Uh, it's been a very long time. But essentially, the sodium shift in his brain had caused brain damage secondary to the, to the withdrawal from alcohol. And it had left him in a, a state of almost locked-in syndrome. He could, he could barely communicate. He couldn't move at all. And he was being reviewed very regularly by the neurologist and the neurorehabilitation. But for the meantime, for his medical needs, he was being managed on our ward. And we didn't really do that much for him. And we obviously made sure that his blood work was okay, that he was hydrated, that he was being fed, you know, passing NG tubes, things like that. But it was very much conversations with the family about, we really don't think this is going to get better. We need to have very guarded um, goals for what, for what this is going to be a very guarded prognosis. And slowly, but surely that there were improvements and, I, I feel like I, I very much, I was very early on in the job at that point and potentially I, I had very much more idealistic thinking than, than maybe I ended up with at the end of F2. But at any rate, I spent a lot of time with this patient. I would make sure that I spent a lot of time with him each day um, because I just thought to myself, this is a horrible situation to be in. Regardless of what we may see, he may not be able to communicate, he may not be able to move, but I have no doubt when I look at his face that he is thinking and he is aware of what's happening. And I made sure to spend time with him and I recognized that he couldn't really speak back to me. He couldn't engage in a conversation with me, but I just thought that if I was in that situation, I would want someone to spend that time with me, um, even if I couldn't really do much about it. But slowly and surely he did 
begin to make some improvements. He he developed some kind of communication ability, some very, very limited movement. And it got to a point where he was medically stable enough to go to a uh, neuro rehabilitation center. And, you know, he was just about able to say thank you in a, in a very muffled way when he left. And I kind of said to him, I'll be honest with you. I didn't really, I didn't really do much. I, I, you know, I gave you some fluid every now and again and checked your bloods and made sure you were being fed, but you know, where you're going now, that's where all the work is really going to go. And he obviously wasn't able to say much more to me after that. Anyway, uh, I'm now at the end of this rotation. I've not seen this patient in months and someone walks up to me, uh, at Costa coffee and taps me on the shoulder and says, do you remember me? And I said, I, I turned around and I, I didn't want to say anything because I thought there's, there's no possible way this is who this is. But it was it was that patient. He was walking with no aids. He was completely uh, communicative. There was there was no deficit whatsoever. And he had actually he'd, he'd made a complete recovery. And his partner was there who I knew very well. She obviously visited a lot and they were both so gracious and so thankful. And what he wasn't thanking me for was for his physical care. It was the fact that he recognized that I'd taken the time to just speak to him. And he'd clearly remembered that, which I found obviously incredibly touching. And it taught me that whilst obviously the physical care we take of patients is obviously incredibly important, that human side from the patient's perspective, they're not going to remember how many bags of normal saline you prescribed them or what their potassium was on the 28th of June, 2021 they're going to remember the conversations they had and they're going to remember how you treated them as a human being. And that was, that was a very important lesson. It was very poignant. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what I've tried to remember through every rotation. And sometimes it's difficult because you're very stressed and you don't feel like you've got anything more to give, but, um, yeah, I think that's, that's what I've tried to maintain throughout my career. And when I think about career decisions, experiences like that, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure where that leads me to a career decision, but I think it's it's reassuring that even if you're not doing much as a doctor, you can still do a lot as a human being wearing the the coat of a doctor. That's that's a lovely story. Yeah, lovely story. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely my my, my favourite story to tell because it's a it's a happy one. Okay, well we can we can we can um, discuss where that leaves your career decision on another occasion. But I'll wrap us up for the podcast for today. Um, so before we finish, um, what would be your top tips for foundation doctors making career decisions? And so you've got to do the practical stuff. You've got to look at the pros and cons of each speciality as you understand it. You've got to look at where you see yourself in in twenty years time, but at the same time recognizing that you can probably get those outcomes through most specialities and there is no formula to work out what you want to do you will just make a decision and you're the arbiter of your own fate and if you're determined enough that you'll you'll get what you want and it's okay to feel the fear of regret and also recognize that just because you fear regret doesn't mean you will regret and that there's lots of choice you have to to mitigate that that risk thank you very much thanks matt